Peter chapter 1. If you're there in your Bibles, stick a bookmark there and then turn over to the book of Matthew. 1 Peter chapter 1, put a bookmark there, we'll be coming there momentarily. Turn over to the book of Matthew. When we think of the 12 disciples, generally the first one that pops into our minds is Peter. He is maybe the one who has the most spoken lines in the gospel. He's maybe the one that we know the most about. He was one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples. It's always Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. is Peter, James, and John. Uh, and Peter is a very unique figure in the Gospels. Outside of Christ, he may be the person in the New Testament that we have looked most at the character of because it's a bit of an unusual character. If you're in Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 4. We are not doing an in-depth study on the character of Peter tonight, but we are looking at a couple points regarding who he was. First Peter chapter 4, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, verse number 18 says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Peter was a fisherman. That was his trade. He was, if you will, a blue-collar worker. And being a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee was a very difficult task. It's a fairly small body of water, but it's a very rough one. Storms come up quickly. They go down quickly. It's very uh, tumultuous there. And for Peter to be a fisherman, it was an intense job. To make a living out of that, he had to be fully invested in that. He had to be fully engrossed in this life as a fisherman. Uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 9, a couple chapters over. We know he was a fisherman. He had that mindset. He had that mentality of that rough life of being a fisherman. Matthew chapter 9, maybe the most uh, familiar thing that we think about with Peter is his speaking before his thinking. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. 4, verse 6, he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. He didn't know what to say, and so he just said the first thing that came into his mouth. Uh, he said words, he, the Bible says he didn't even know what to say, and so he just sort of threw something out there. He was the kind of person who was always speaking uh, before his mind fully caught up with what he was going to say. Uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 14, a couple chapters later. Matthew chapter 14. Again, Peter is the one that, when we think of the disciples, we think of that man of action. He was an impetuous person. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walking on the water. We know the passage, verse 27. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter, verse 28, answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee in the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He was an impetuous person. The other disciples are there, uh, probably cowering in fear, both from the storm and from this, this figure walking on the water. And here goes Peter. He says, Lord, if it's you, bid me. And boom, he steps out of the boat. He was a man of action. He was an impetuous person. Uh, and then turn over to the book of John. The book of John, few gospels to the right. John chapter 18, we come to... Uh, right around the night of the crucifixion. 
Jesus arrests in the garden. And once again, we see Simon Peter's character sort of flaring up here. Verse number 10, John chapter 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. He was some sort of a, uh, he had some violent impulses. He had some anger issues dealing with. I don't really think that he was aiming for his ear. That's a weird thing to aim for. I think he was trying to kill this guy. He was trying to defend Jesus. Good cause, yes, sure. But he was allowing this anger to flow through him. He had some, he was a bit rough around the edges. He had some violent tendencies, some uh, impetuous actions. And then turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, there has been, of course, the, the filling of the Spirit at Pentecost. 5,000 saved Peter, once again, being the primary preacher of that day. As this early church is, is coming into conflict with the Jewish leaders, look at verse number 13. Now when they, the Jewish leaders, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. By the own testimony of others, Peter was not some highly educated person. He was not like Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Remember, he was a fisherman. Uh, he was this sort of rough-around-the-edges person. He was not what we would call the scholarly type. He was a, a tough man as a fisherman. He was an impetuous man. He even had some anger issues. He was speaking before he was thinking. He was, uh, he was unlearned, not necessarily that he didn't know anything, but that he was not a highly educated man like the scribes were. This is who Peter is. And again, we're not doing a deep character study of Peter. That's not the point. We're sort of just touching on a couple, couple thoughts. But it is with this, this mindset of who Peter is that when we look at the books that he wrote, First and Second Peter, we find a word that is repeated several times that seems to be a little bit unusual for a man of Peter's caliber. And that word, you can turn back to First Peter, that word is the word precious. Precious. Seven times throughout First and Second Peter, and neither of them are very long books, but seven times throughout those two books, the word precious appears. Peter uses the word precious. The word precious means highly valued, much esteemed, of great value or worth. When we think of the word precious, it often carries a sentimentality to it. It carries an emotional connection to it. And it's an unusual word for a rough fisherman like Peter to use throughout his epistles. And for just a few moments, we are going to be looking throughout these, these two books, and we're going to be looking at what Peter, this rough, quick-spoken, impetuous man, deems to be precious. Precious. If you're in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse number 7 with me. Verse number 7. Peter writes that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The first thing that Peter says is precious is 
highly valued, is worth, great worth, is the trial of our faith. To put this into perspective, we have to understand the context that 1 Peter is writing to. He is writing to Christians in an incredibly difficult time period. We actually went over this in world history today. But 1 Peter was writing under the rule of the Roman Emperor Nero. Uh, the Roman Emperor Nero would be the first to bring about worldwide, if you will, across the Roman Empire, persecution against the Christians. There had been scattered persecution before, primarily from the Jewish people, the occasional uprising, uh, but it was mostly localized. Under Nero, that expanded across the entire Roman Empire. Paul, uh, as we're looking at with Pastor on Wednesday nights, would ultimately be beheaded under Nero. Peter, the author of these books, would be crucified under Nero. And the persecution of Christians began in earnest under this time period. Uh, the crucifixion, the Colosseum and the wild beasts, the burning at the stake, all of these different things came into fruition in this time that Peter is writing. He was writing at a time of great persecution, and he is writing to be an encouragement to those going through this persecution. He's writing to Christians who I dare say none of us have gone through the level of persecution, and hopefully never will, but we have never gone through the level of persecution that these Christians were going through, being dragged off to the Colosseum, being burned at the stake, all of these different things. And he says, the trial of your faith is precious. couple things regarding trials. And remember, this is an encouragement for those going through them. couple things regarding trials. Trials, whether we like it or not, are a necessary part of our lives. Look at verse 6. We did not read it, but look what it says. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. There are times in our lives where God deems it necessary to put us through some trials. There can be a number of different reasons. You don't have to turn there. But Psalm chapter 119, verse 67, the author says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep that, thy word. It may be that our hearts are wandering. It may be that there is sin in our lives. And a trial is a form of correction. It's a way of getting us back on track. It's a way of recentering ourselves, refocusing ourselves. But it may also be to teach us dependence on God. Uh, put your marker there. I do want you to turn here. And that is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a very familiar passage. And most of us are, are familiar with it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing here. Verse number 7. He says, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart me, it might go away from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore... Will I glory in mine affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, 
persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If we go through our lives and nothing ever goes wrong and we are never out of control of a situation and there's never something beyond our power, we never come to the point where we are truly and totally relying on God. It's so easy to have backup plans in our own lives and to try and figure out solutions our own way, how we're going to fix these problems. And so there are times in our lives where God has to bring us to a point where, like Paul, we say, when I am weak, he is strong. And we allow him to work through us. Paul said, I would rather glory in mine affirmities and have the power of Christ on me. Trials are necessary in our lives. Maybe to correct ourselves, to correct our course. But more often for us as Christians, I think they teach us dependence on God. They teach us to further and deeper rely on Him for the strength that we need. Trials are needed. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Trials are needed. Secondly... Note that trials are various. Trials are various. In verse 6 as well. It says, if need be, this last end of the verse, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Manifold. It's not a word that we use too often unless you're you're talking about a car and the manifold in a car. Uh, But manifold means of diverse kinds, many in number, numerous or multiplied. Looking back at what we just mentioned, when God chooses to bring trials into our lives, there is not a one-size-fits-all mentality when it comes to that. We can look through the Bible and we can see that. We look at some of the most famous people who went through trials. Think Job. Think Paul, as we just mentioned. Think Joseph in the Old Testament. And no two persons went through the same experiences, went through the same Uh, moving of God in their lives. And that goes right along with the third thought, which is this, that trials are controlled by God. Verse 6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season. God is the one who is ultimately at work. If we are saved here tonight, he is at work through the trials in our lives. Look at verse number 7 at the verse that we read just a moment ago, and look at the illustration that is used there. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Pause there, and we'll look at the last part in just a moment. He uses the illustration of gold that perisheth and the purifying of the gold, comparing our lives to that of that precious metal. And if you follow that illustration, a goldsmith if he is purifying his gold, he doesn't just put it on the heat and then walk away and let it go. No, he is invested in it. He is watching it because you can overdo it. If you overmelt it, it loses some of its purity. It loses some of its its, uh, pureness. And a goldsmith watches very, very closely to the precious metal that he is working with. He wants to get it to the exact point where he can remove those impurities and then no farther, removes it from the heat. He does not want to ruin the metal that he is working with. And that is the way that God works in our lives. As we already mentioned, he does not allow trials in our lives just for the sake of making our lives miserable. Rather, it is to work in our lives. It is to 
purify us. It is to teach us that dependence on Christ. And ultimately, the goal of the trials is found at the end of verse number 7. Look there if you would. I'll read the whole verse. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, here's the purpose, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate goal for the purifying, the trying of our faith, is that our faith might be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Christ. That is the goal. That is the purpose. That is the reason why trials are allowed. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter is writing to this group who is going through this intense persecution. Maybe they're hiding for their lives. They're meeting in secret. Christianity as a whole has been outlawed where they are. And so they're meeting in secret. They're fearful for their lives. And Paul is writing this as an encouragement saying, hey, this trial of your faith is not by accident. It is through, it is allowed by the hand of God and it has a purpose. It's not random. It's not just this, this random bad thing that is occurring to you. This is allowed by God for the purifying of your faith, that our faith might be found unto the praise and the honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. We mentioned Job a moment ago. And Job made a very similar statement in his trials. In the midst, Job chapter 23, almost smack dab in the middle of the book of Job, with the, the, all the dialogue going back and forth. Job is sitting miserable, covered in boils. He's lost everything. His friends are there, the so-called miserable comforters. And Job makes the statement, But he knoweth the way that I take. For when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He uses the same illustration that Peter uses several thousand years later. Uh, and if you're familiar with this verse, it, it, is, it always reminds me of that song that we sing by Ron Hamilton. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. If you're familiar with Ron Hamilton, you know he went through many of his own personal trials, losing an eyeball, a uh, number of different things. And he was able to take this verse and recognize that the trials that were going through his life, they were in his life for a purpose. They were allowed by God. And they were there with the purpose of purifying. And he was able to pen those words, When I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. Peter looked at these, these Christians scattered abroad Asia, the Roman Empire. And he was able to say, and he was going through the same persecutions. Remember, he would ultimately be crucified. He was able to look at them and say, the trial of your faith is precious. When we think about what that word means, remember, highly valued, worth a great deal. He says the trial of your faith is not simply something that uh, is to be endured. It's something that is to be highly valued. It's precious. It's the way God purifies. It's the way God brings us into that dependence for him. He says, this is something that is precious. The trial of our faith. First Peter chapter 1, you're still there. Turn over just a few verses, maybe a page in your Bible. 
And we'll look at the second thing that Peter tells us is a precious thing to us as Christians. 1 Peter chapter 1, look if you would at verse 16, and we'll read down a couple of verses. It says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, look at verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter tells us that the second thing that is precious is the blood of Christ. He uses this word, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things. That word redeemed is a very important one. It means to buy back, to buy back. Uh, in my study for this passage, I came across this, this statistic that in the Roman Empire, as many as 50 million slaves were a part of the population. You were more likely to be a slave in the Roman Empire than any other uh, class of citizens. And as a slave, you had the opportunity to purchase your freedom, whether through saving up as many scraps of money as you could get your hands on, or by having a, a benefactor, someone who took pity on you, uh, maybe befriended you, maybe you did a service to them, whatever it might be, and they would buy your freedom. They would redeem you. Peter says, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. He's talking to people, many of them who may have been slaves or were very familiar with this concept, and they would have been familiar with the idea of redeeming a slave for a certain amount of money, for silver and gold. Peter says, you and I as Christians, we were not redeemed, we were not purchased with corruptible things, but rather with the precious blood of Christ. He says that blood is precious. It's highly valued. It is worth a great deal. Notice, what we were redeemed from. Verse uh, number 18 tells us, For, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversations received by tradition of your fathers. We were redeemed from a couple things. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we were redeemed from sin. Verse number 6 says that knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We are told that before we are saved, we were the servants to sin. We had no choice but to live as sinners. That was our only nature. But when we are saved, when we are redeemed, we are bought back from that and we are no longer the slaves to sin but rather we are the servants to righteousness not only that but first peter tells us we were redeemed from the vain conversations vain conversations we were redeemed from our empty life if you look through the idea of vanity uh, Solomon had a whole existential crisis in Ecclesiastes and over and over again he says that uh, vanity of vanities all is vanity the fact that the things of this world is emptiness. And he was a man who went after pretty much everything in the world, everything that money could buy, uh, all the power, all the influence, the wealth, the pleasure, the entertainment. You read through it, he says, I went after everything this world could offer, and yet it was vanity. 
And before we were saved, that was the only life we had. We had an empty life, a vain life. But Peter tells us that we were redeemed from that vain conversation, that vain lifestyle. We were redeemed from that empty life, and we were given a whole new life. We were born again. We were given that new life, that new purpose. All of that came with our redemption. And then, of course, as we already mentioned, we were redeemed not with gold, not with silver, as a slave might have been in the Roman Empire, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. If you look back, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 12, when the Passover is being laid out for the children of Israel as they, as they are coming out of Egypt, and God is giving the instruction to, to Moses of how they are to conduct the Passover, how, are they, how they are going to kill the lamb and spread the blood and all of those different things that we know are a picture of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. And, and this is echoed in the verses that we just read with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. But the blood of Christ was far, far better than the blood of any lamb. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. I told you I've been studying Hebrews on Wednesday or on Sunday night. I love, love, love the book of Hebrews. And one of the things I mentioned was that Hebrew is a book of contrast, showing how the sacrifice of Christ in particular, as we're looking at, is better than the sacrifice of any lamb. First Peter, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll read a couple verses beginning in verse number 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats, that's the Old Testament, the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The author of Hebrews contrasts back to the Old Testament sacrifices. And those sacrifices were to be the lambs, the goats, without blemish. They were to be the best of the best. Uh, the, the farmers, the shepherds, they would raise that lamb from birth with the purpose of being that sacrificial lamb. They would feed it the best food. They would ensure its safety. And then they would bring it to the temple and the priest would look it over and make sure that there were no blemishes, that there were no issues. And the author of Hebrews says... If, though, if the blood of those bulls and those goats, the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, if that worked in the Old Testament, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who is that perfect lamb without blemish, who is that uh, final sacrifice, completing, signifying all of those Old Testament sacrifices, how much more Shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience from dead works? Peter says, hey, to these, these people who were living in this Roman Empire, mindful of this concept of slavery, mindful of this concept of being redeemed, he says, you were not redeemed 
with corruptible things. You weren't purchased back with a piece of gold. You weren't purchased back with a piece of silver. He says, but rather it was with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter tells us that the blood of Christ is a precious thing. It is a precious thing. Um, in a number of different movements and churches today, there is an effort to remove the blood of Christ from the gospel and to remove it from the, the work of salvation. But we're told in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so we cannot remove, we cannot get over the precious blood of Christ in our salvation. In our salvation. Peter tells us that the trial of our faith, the work of our faith, the testing, the purifying of our faith that we go through, that God allows into our life, is a precious thing. It is something to be highly valued. It's something to be esteemed. It's something to be held on to. He tells us as well that the blood of Christ is a precious, precious thing. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We are not going to get through all of the points tonight. In fact, we're actually going to end with the blood of Christ. We're going to uh, give a little preview. I did this on purpose because pastor is going to be gone next Wednesday. And so if you want to hear the rest of them, you have to come back next Wednesday to hear the remaining things. But we are going to read over them. And I would encourage you maybe take the time over the week to read over them, study them out a little bit on your own time. The various different things. There are three more things that Peter tells us are precious. Three of them, three times the word precious appears in chapter 2. Uh, let's start reading from the beginning of the chapter and we'll just read down and we'll see them. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as near, newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and Precious. Verse 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up as spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in scripture. Behold I lay in sigh on a chief cornerstone elect precious and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Verse 7. Unto you therefore which believe he Christ is precious but unto them which be disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Three times in this passage, uh, the word precious is used. And in this section, Peter is telling these Christians that he's writing to that Christ the cornerstone is precious. Christ the cornerstone is, is precious. Turn over now to 2 Peter. We will go through all three of these in greater detail next week. We have Christ, the cornerstone is, is precious. First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter, chapter 1, verse number 1, the very first verse says, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He opens this book saying that our faith is a precious 
faith, something to be held on to, something to be esteemed. And then the last one we see in the same chapter, verse number four. Verse number four, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And we see the last one there, great and precious promises. We see this man, Peter, he is beginning his, if you will, journey as this rough fisherman, an impetuous person, someone who is speaking before he is thinking. But over the time, the three years that he spends with Christ, the years afterwards as an apostle, as a founder of the early church, there is a major, major work of God in his heart. And he shifts from being this rough fisherman to a man who recognizes the preciousness of these certain things. He recognizes the importance, the value of these different things. He recognizes the preciousness of the trying of our faith. No doubt a difficult pill for these people to swallow. No doubt something that they would not necessarily have maybe agreed with, maybe felt. But he's writing them saying, hey... The trials that you are going through, the persecution, the heaviness, he uses the word, it's on purpose. Excuse me, God is allowing this into your life, and it's not by random chance. There is a reason, and there is an ultimate end goal that God is looking for, and that is to purify your faith, to purify you like gold, to purify uh, any any absence from God out of our lives to increase that dependence on God to purify us like gold. He says the blood of Christ is a precious thing. And if that is the only thing that we remember, that is enough. The fact that we were not redeemed, it would be impossible to redeem us from sin with any physical wealth, with any physical uh, donations or gifts or anything like that. We could never buy ourselves freedom from sin through any physical means. He says corruptible means. He uses the word, but with the precious, precious blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that was the purchase price for our freedom from sin. And then three other things that he mentions are precious. Christ, the cornerstone uh, of our belief, of our lives, uh, our faith is precious, and then the promises that we have are precious. So, we are going to stop there for today. We are going to go over these next...